so we've got two readings, and the first reading I'm going to read is uh, Luke 15, 11 to 23. This is a parable of the lost son, and a lot of us uh, will be able to identify with this, I think. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out as a citizen of that country, out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is living again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is the gospel of the Lord. And I'm going to invite Louise to come and give us our Old Testament reading, uh, which is Isaiah 1, verses 1 to 20. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manager, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, of brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel. And turn their backs on him. Why should you be beaten any more? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or banished or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as the, when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been more like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? 
I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you came to appear before me, who has asked of you this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals. I hate them with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Through your sins are like the, sorry, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So hopefully you're already uh, starting to make the connection between those two readers, readings, the parable of the prodigal son and the uh, reading from Isaiah there. Um, if you haven't already, please uh, take out your Bibles. It'd be uh, really helpful to have those open as we work through this. So um, back when we were in COVID lockdown, Tissa was cutting my hair. And I think we were watching a family movie at the time. And uh, all of a sudden, something happened. And Isabel went, and Tissa went, and Caleb went, ha ha. <laughs> and I said, what's wrong? Because obviously, I couldn't see anything. And uh, I didn't know what the problem was. But uh, when Tissa continued to apologize profusely, I thought that I'd better go and have a look in the mirror. So I went to the uh, the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and I realized that Tissa had forgotten to put the clipper, the, sorry, the, the, uh, the grader onto the clipper. So I had a big bald streak up the side of my head. Sometimes you have to look in the mirror to know what is wrong. And the prophet Isaiah effectively held up a mirror to the people of Jerusalem and Judah. By, by the way, when, uh, when we were in COVID lockdown and our, our services were online, obviously I had to, to record a service with this big bald streak down the side of my head. And Tissa had the ingenious idea of saving some of the hair and sticking it back onto my head with a Pritt stick. <laughs> and amazingly, it worked. And uh, n- nobody was any the wiser, but you now know. Anyway, the uh, book of Isaiah, which begins with this mirror being held up to the leaders of Jerusalem, was written over quite a long period of time, probably all written by Isaiah himself uh, in his lifetime, um, beginning at around 735, 7, uh, 730 BC, something like that. And Isaiah was writing at a terrible time in Israel's history. Uh, the nation of Israel reached its zenith, its height, under the reigns of King David and then his son Solomon. Uh, well, we're about 300 years on from then. 
And after the reign of King Solomon, uh, the kingdom of Israel split in two. It became a divided kingdom uh, with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And all the kings who ruled over uh, Israel and Judah were for the most part appalling. In fact, all of the uh, kings of Israel were bad, and most of the kings and one queen of Judah were also bad. Uh, the people, the, uh, the leaders, the kings, uh, they led the people astray through idolatry, and they ignored the cries of the poor and the oppressed, so the whole nation became idolatrous and unjust on so many levels. To give you an idea of the extent of their depravity, King Ahaz, who ruled over Judah, sacrificed his own son in the fire to a pagan god. So child sacrifice was even taking place. Uh, so Isaiah is addressing a nation that had got about as far from God as it's possible to get. And he begins by saying, Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is God speaking through his servant Isaiah, which is what prophecy is when God speaks through a human agent. Uh, This is the same God who created the heavens and the earth by speaking them into being. The God who chose Abraham and his descendants to be a blessing to all nations, who rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and guided them for 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness uh, in spite of their constant complaining and disobedience. The God who led his people into the promised land, a a land flowing with milk and honey, uh, a land uh, where they could live in peace and prosperity, a land they could call their own. God has done so much for his people, and he's been infinitely patient with them. But now through the prophet Isaiah, God is saying, enough is enough. He says, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So God has lovingly raised up this nation. He's protected and nurtured and provided, and his people don't even know him. Even animals recognize who it is that look after them. They know who it is they depend on. Uh, When I was a child, my uh, home backed onto a farm and we could uh, walk out the back gate and literally there'd be fields and woods and open spaces. Um, And uh, we lived in the same road as the farmer. In fact, it was his wife who led my mum to Christ. Uh, So each spring, we would take on a couple of orphan lambs and we'd raise them by hand uh, with uh, milk in a, uh, you know, formula milk in a bottle. And uh, when we went into the garden each morning, the lambs would come skipping over to see us. They'd be bleating their little hearts out, nuzzling us, uh, because they knew that we were the ones who were going to feed them, uh, that we were the ones who were caring for them. would have been quite bizarre if they'd ignored us and shunned us and acted as they couldn't care less about us. They needed us, and they knew it. Sheep are not the brightest of animals. And Isaiah uses the example of the ox and the donkey, but the same kind of thing. Sheep are not the brightest of animals, but they know who it is they depend on. Human beings are significantly more intelligent than sheep, we hope, most of the time. 
But so often, we don't even know who it is that we depend on. Independence is seen as a real strength in our culture. People strive for their independence. And that, of course, can be a good thing. If you're dependent on an oppressive, autocratic regime, then striving for your independence is is good. But the truth is, we haven't been created for independence. We've been created to be dependent on God and interdependent on one another. And this first chapter of Isaiah shows us what happens when a nation rejects God and tries to live independently from him. You see, human beings do not do a very good job of working it out on their own when, when it comes to morality and how to live well in God's world. And the reason for that can be summed up in one word, sin. Broadly speaking, there are two ways of looking at human nature. Uh, there are those who believe that all human beings are basically good, and all we have to do is encourage that goodness to shine through. And I think that would be a more secular view of human nature. And then you have the Christian view. As Christians, we believe that all human beings are broken and sinful. Sin is like a hereditary disease that has infected the whole of the human race. And because of sin, we have an inbuilt inclination to reject God's ways and substitute God's laws for our own whims, desires, preferences, and ideologies. If you doubt that human beings are all infected with sin, if you think that our natural inclination is to be good, then I recommend you observe the behavior of uh, a two-year-old, any two-year-old. Now, it's a beautiful age. I was talking to someone about this yesterday. It's a beautiful age, and it's, uh, I, I loved it when my children were that age. Uh, but there are times, as adorable as they are, when children want to get their own way, regardless of the impact it has on the people around them, and if left unchecked, they will do almost anything to get it. As a parent, nothing can prepare you for a full-on terrible twos tantrum when your child doesn't get what they want and they fly into a complete rage. Raise your hand if you've ever witnessed a terrible twos tantrum, either your, your, your own child or someone else's. It's not something that you forget. If a two-year-old had the size and the strength of an adult, then uh, getting that enraged would be seriously dangerous. It would be seriously dangerous. And that is why we work hard as parents to teach our children respect, restraint, patience, kindness, self-control. You see, the fruits of the Spirit uh, start to come to the fore. Characteristics that God's Holy Spirit imbues us with. That's why our number one priority as parents is to lead our children to Christ, that they might be filled with the Holy Spirit and start manifesting the fruits of the Spirit in their lives. But whether it's a secular family family, uh, uh, or Christian, Muslim, Buddhist or whatever, it's very important for everyone's safety and sanity that Small children become socialized as quickly as possible because we don't naturally do the right thing. We don't naturally do the right thing all the time. We're predisposed towards evil without Christ. That is our predisposition. And it's so subtle and so insidious that we don't always notice our waywardness until it's pointed out to us. And even then we're inclined to ignore it. 
Just like Isaiah holding up that mirror to the people of Judah, to the leaders of Judah, who in turn uh, roundly rejected his message. Without guidance, we go in the wrong direction as individuals and as a society. Without God's guidance, any nation will start to veer off in the wrong direction. And in verse 4, Isaiah makes it clear that Israel had utterly rejected God. He said, woe to this sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. When people or nations turn their backs on God, very often, or usually I think, they feel that they're exercising their freedom. Many modern secular thinkers would say that the West has broken free of the constrictive and limiting bonds of primitive religion. To enjoy life, to live life to the full, uninhibited and unencumbered by outdated notions of morality. Well, turning our backs on God is exercising our freedom, but it's God who gives us that freedom. God does allow us to genuinely say no to him, but rejecting God will never make us free. Quite the opposite. It leads to moral degeneration for the individual and for the society. Ultimately, nothing good can come from rejecting God. And Isaiah makes that clear in verses 5 to seven. He says, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. When Isaiah wrote this, uh, the Assyrians were already in the process of overthrowing and enslaving the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, they were posed a very real threat to Judah, as did the Babylonian Empire, which is, of course, the empire that uh, finally uh, conquered Judah and carried them into captivity. Rejecting God was disastrous for Israel and Judah, but the leaders would not change course. And at this stage, it's not so much that God is punishing them, it's more that they had stepped out from under God's umbrella of protection. And God is saying, why are you rejecting me? I want to help you. Come back to me so I can protect you and help you to thrive as a nation. God loves his people. He wants the best for them. He's crying out to them. And if we were to illustrate this on an individual level, nothing could do so more clearly than the parable of the prodigal son that we read this morning. This young man who enjoyed the love, the protection, the security of his father's home. And he rejected all that. He rejected his father. He demanded his share of the inheritance, even though his father was still alive. And in that culture, to say to your father, I want my share of the inheritance now, was exactly the same as saying, Father, you are dead to me. Father, you are dead to me. That young man thought he knew best. He thought he was going to live it up and enjoy life to the full, but he ruined himself. And he ended up doing a menial job uh, feeding pigs, which uh, for a Jewish person is also a shameful job, job because as we know, uh, pigs are unclean animals for, for Jews. 
And you can imagine that young man, so hungry that the pig food looked appetizing. But no one will give him any. Matted hair, dirty torn clothes, no shoes, shivering at night, vulnerable to abuse, utterly desolate, longing for his father's home. But of course, that was the choice he'd made. And as soon as he returned to his father's home, when he was a long way off, the father came running out to meet him, actually in, in that culture, for the, for, for the senior member of a family the, to, to, to run was, uh, was considered really a very embarrassing, shameful thing to do. But the father didn't care about that. He ran out to meet his son. He embraced him. He welcomed him with open arms, literally. That is what God is wanting Israel to do. That's what Isaiah is proclaiming. Nothing good can come from rejecting God for the individual or for the nation. And we see that in our own time. The Western world has rejected God. And what have we got to show for it? The institution of the family, the very bedrock of our society, is breaking down. People are more stressed than ever before. And we, uh, there are countless uh, studies that show this. There's an epidemic of loneliness. Mental ill health is on the rise, especially among young people. I was uh, uh, horrified to discover that almost a third of Australians aged between 16 and 34 are currently reporting high levels of distress. Our children are growing up in a bewildering landscape where they're being bullied online and they've been asked to, to, to choose at a very young age, what gender they want to be, all this kind of thing. It's, it's a very confusing environment. Every generation has its problems, but I'm convinced that the further we move away from God, the rottener our society will become. And it's the same on a personal level. Leaving God on the fringes of my life will not lead to greater fulfillment, and rejecting him altogether certainly won't. I've tried it. As a younger man, I know that it doesn't work. I ended up in a world of spiritual and emotional pain and turmoil. Nothing good can come from rebelling against God. Nothing. Of course, some people reject God and they pretend that they haven't. Judah did that. They were still observing their religious festivals and offering sacrifices, but they were worshipping the one true God of Israel alongside all these other uh, pagan gods, false gods. And their behavior was the very opposite of what God wanted in pretty much every area of their lives. And God speaks against their hypocrisy in the clearest possible language. Allow me to read a few extracts from verse 11 to 15. He says, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. It can't be clearer than that. You might say, well, that's a bit mean. Why isn't God listening to their prayers? Well, because there's no attempt on their part at a relationship with God. There's no desire to follow God. There's no appetite for justice. All there is is out-and-out rebellion against God. Think of it like this. There's a child who every morning goes into his parents' bedroom with a cup of tea and a slice of toast for each of them. And he's saying, good morning, mum and dad, I love you, and walks out. And you think, ah, oh, that's sweet. 
And it is, but that's where it ends, because the rest of the day, that child is the most disobedient, obnoxious, hateful child you could ever imagine. He spits and swears at his parents, he tortures the cat, deliberately breaks things, won't do anything he's told, a nightmare. How long do you think it would be before his parents said, you know that tea and toast thing in the morning? Don't bother. It doesn't mean a lot. And that's what was happening with the people of Judah. They expressed outward expressions of worship, love and devotion, but their hearts were as far from God as they could possibly be. And as Christians, we need to make sure that we're not just going through the motions. Our lives and our characters should make it obvious that we belong to Jesus. It goes well beyond anything that happens here on a Sunday morning. We won't be perfect. We won't always get it right. But our hearts should be inclined towards God, and we should be open to what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do in and through us. So Isaiah gives the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah a stark warning. He, he holds up a mirror to them to show them what they've become. But it's not just the case of, right, you've rebelled against God, you've made God angry, you deserve everything that you've got coming. No, God is pleading with his people to return to him. Verses 18 to 20 say this, Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though you are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If the people will just turn back to God, they'll be forgiven. They'll be made clean and pure. Uh, Their sins will be blotted out. They'll be welcomed back into a right relationship with their heavenly father, just like the prodigal son. We only have to show the slightest inclination at turning back to God, and he comes and embraces us. God wants us close to him. Of course, Isaiah couldn't understand how this forgiveness and this blotting out of sins and all all that God promised, he couldn't understand how this was going to happen. But we know how it's happened. God came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, and he died on a cross for our sins. He died for your sins and for mine. He died so that we don't have to. Jesus was separated from God so that we can be reconciled to God. Jesus went through agony to spare us the pain and the turmoil that comes from being far from God. And many of us will have experienced that pain and that turmoil and that upheaval and that unsettledness and that feeling that there's something missing in our lives because we're so far from God. All of us at times are rebellious children. We ignore the still, small voice of God. We think we know best. We do things our way instead of God's way. We resign ourselves to the sin in our lives. We think, oh, it doesn't really matter. We devote part of our lives to God, but not all of them. We withhold stuff. We cling to unwholesome and negative patterns of behavior. We rebel. But because of Jesus, that rebellion need not be terminal. So let us settle the matter and come to Jesus in sorrow for our sins in the knowledge that God promises to forgive all of those who truly repent. And so... Uh, Rather than finish with a prayer, I'm going to lead straight into our confession.